I um, I recognize that everybody's basic motive is self-preservation, and so you want to have me as far away from far away from the spit range as you can be. Well, Ronnie, thanks for letting us crash in here today. Uh, it is nice to have a little air. For those of you who are not normally with us, <clears throat> or for those of us who are allowing us to be with you, um, we're, we're going through numbers. And this is a, pardon the pun, uh, been a long journey for us. Um, we have been uh, going through the first five books of the Bible for about ten years now. We actually took, we took a break between Leviticus and Numbers for a couple of years to do Acts. And um, it's been an interesting thing. A lot of, I'll just ask the guys that are in the class, the, the time frame of Numbers a lot of times I think is, is interesting. I, when I think of books of the Bible, I think of terms of like years between them, you know, long epics of time. The Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers is actually, the time frame is, is relatively short. All of that happens at the foot of Sinai. Then the first few chapter, chapters in Numbers, when they start going out, obviously you got more time, like 40 years, we'll learn about later. But, but that initial time frame is really short within a, a, a month, several weeks of time. When God uh, appears on the mountain, Moses goes up and uh, gives the instructions to build the tabernacle, the instructions on what the priests are supposed to do. All of that is done at the foot of the mountain. Tabernacle is built, and then a week later, we're getting instructions really from, from numbers. Uh, and so it, it's, it, it's a shame, I think, sometimes when we break books up that they really should flow. It's, it's one long story, and we'll get back to the one long story uh, later on. There's been some things that happened this week that I thought would be interesting to talk about. But, but previously in our book, uh, our study of Numbers, we were on chapter 3, if you want to follow along. Uh, chapter 3 of Numbers, we've, we've seen that the Levites, there was a census done in chapter 1. It was a military census, and it's uh, the picture of the king setting up his army for a march. They're headed to um, the promised land and he's got the tribes divided up in certain ways and he puts them in certain places. And within the, 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 the tribes, <laughs> Twoav, Two censuses. Um, so in, in the midst of the tribes that he set up around the, the campsite, in the middle of that is the tabernacle. The very center of everything is the tabernacle. And the Levites are not counted in the military census because they're not going out to war. They're set around the tabernacle to guard and keep some keywords that we see in Genesis 1. Some guard to guard and keep the tabernacle area. And so they're set apart for a, a, a different an exceptional service at the tabernacle than the rest of the tribes. And they're the temple guard, so to speak, I mean, at this point. And they're, and they're to prevent strangers from approaching in an unauthorized manner. And they're also to guard themselves. So let's, that's just the overview here. Let's look at what he says in verse 1. Uh, he says, These are the generations of Aaron and Moses at the time when the Lord... Of course, it's all caps, right? What does it mean when the Lord is all caps? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. What does that mean? Yahweh. Yahweh. What is Yahweh? What, what does that mean? What, why, why does he use that name? What is, what is, why not just say Adonai or King or whatever? Why, why Yahweh? What's significant about that? What do we get from that? Who's using it? Who's calling himself that? 
The Lord is. God is. Why does he call himself that? Why does he just say, I God? Why Yahweh? What is significant about the name Yahweh? Specific. God of Israel. God of Israel. Why, and, and what is significant about the name? Does he use that with the Babylonians? Does he use that name with the... Uh, with the, the is that name his connection with Israel? It is a it is a yes, it is a covenant name. When you tell the Zohar, who who shall I tell my people who you are? I am. I am Yahweh. It's a Yahweh is a derivative of the I am in, in Hebrew. Now I'm no Hebrew scholar, but the smart guys tell me that that's kind of connected, and so we work off of that. It's a covenant name, and so when God speaks in Numbers, as He does in Leviticus, as He does in Exodus, He's speaking as their covenant God. They are covenanted covenanted to Him, and He starts out with. These are the generations of Aaron and Moses at the time when Yahweh, which I don't understand why our English translations don't just say Yahweh, but there it is. When the Lord spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. So there's covenant issue there. These are the names of the sons of Aaron. Nadab, the firstborn, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the anointed priests, whom he ordained to serve as priests. But Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord when they offered unauthorized fire. Your translation may say strange fire, and there's a conference behind that. Uh, unauthorized fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai, and they had no children. So Eleazar and Ithamar served as priests in the lifetime of Aaron their father. So you have this focus that God begins in this chapter, this section. He's already talked about what to do with the other tribes, where to set them up, how to camp. Now he focuses on the Levites, and he starts with the priesthood. Uh, there's an old saying that's good to remember. All priests, in Hebrew theology, all priests are Levites, not all Levites are priests. Okay? So we have here, starting with the subset of the Levites, the priesthood. Um, and this chapter begins focusing on who will be part of that special class of Levites. So we read verses 1 through 4, what strikes you about this? What, what stands out to you about these first four verses? That have to be like an aha profound thing, but what just clicks? And it's interesting to me considering how much this comes up in the rest of the Bible, that the sons of Aaron who are going to continue the priestly tradition are not the firstborns. Well, that's interesting. And we'll get to that in a second, but that's a very interesting point. They're not the firstborn. These are the guys that were left over. That occurs all the time in the Bible. It does. It does. I find it interesting, like, how matter-of-fact it is. It's like, these are his sons. These first two died because he screwed up. Right. Right. They, around my house, we call it, they got a by hood. So, so the generations, how does it start out? Who is the most important person, the most important figure that we have in Genesis through so far numbers? Who's the, who's the biggest, who's Moses. the top dog? Moses. Is he listed first? No. 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 Why is that, you think? Isn't Aaron the older brother? Aaron's the older brother. That's a good point. And, but what's the focus, too? The other reason would be, what's the, the focus? It's on the priesthood. And they come through, not Moses. Does Moses have a son? It mentions generations. And yet Moses' son is not listed. Remember that whole weird scene in Genesis 
with not Genesis, but the Exodus with Moses traveling down and he has to have his son circumcised and his wife is like your husband of blood to me or whatever, just kind of thing. She's gone mad. He has a son. There was a big issue there. Um, but God doesn't mention Moses' son with this because the line of the priests are not coming through Moses. They're coming through Aaron. And it's a very, it's a, it's a statement of this is the subset of the Levites. This is how the priesthood is going to work. It's coming through Aaron. Why Aaron? Why old, doddering, mushy, hey, let's make a golden calf Aaron? Because that's, that's how he ordained it. That's because God said it. Because Yahweh said it. That's exactly right. I mean, you, you have here God redeeming a man who's a squish. And yet making him the head, the patriarch of the priesthood, which is very important in Israelite history, who are the priests. Um, all right. Aaron is firstborn. His descendants are listed. And it says, at that time, he starts out kind of weird. He says, this is the genealogy of Aaron. At that time, he's referring to the precise moment when God said it from the beginning. And this seems to be written a little bit later. So it's just basically Moses is rehearsing that God said, these are the sons of Aaron. This is the genealogy of Aaron. going to be the priest. But we got a problem. What's the problem? A more accurate representation of Aaron's genealogy would be what? Firstborn. Not the first two, right? Because just the last two. And why is that? Because the first two died and had no kids. The first two died and had no kids. They died. Why? Because God sent fire to consume them. God sent fire. What did you say? They offered. They offered. Oh no! I said it right. They offered. They offered. They offered. Offered. See, I'm doing it again. Unauthorized fire. What does that mean? Yeah. What is that? Well, isn't that like they sacrificed when it wasn't supposed to? be? Maybe. Like they uh, either they sacrificed an animal that they weren't supposed to, or did did they actually like sacrifice to a different god? Um, um, well, that's 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 their dad. They don't ever detail it, does it? Never detailed. It says, There's a lot of speculation. I think one of the common explanations of this is that they pulled fire from a source that was not authorized. Uh, they're they're supposed to put fire in their censer to approach the holy of holies or the or the or the tabernacle with fire from the big bronze basin that's on the outside there. So the thought is they didn't do that. They got it from you know Joe Schmo's campfire outside or something and brought it in. And the curious thing is that right after that story in Leviticus ten, uh, there's an injunction against the priesthood: don't drink on duty. And there, with no explanation why that's there right after that story. <laughs> Except that maybe there's a reason that's there right after that story. <laughs> maybe they got, you know, drunk and did something that was unauthorized because you're just not thinking too clearly. Oh, this is right here, whatever. And they, and they got roasted for the Shylin, you know, Shylin, uh, basically. They got toasted and then they got roasted. All right, so that's the thought. All right, so... Why is it important to make that distinction? There's a strange fire judgment here. That's why he's pulling out um, uh, Nadab and Abihu. The, the genealogy changes for Aaron because of the sin of Nadab and Abihu. What else does he say about Nadab and Abihu? It's already been mentioned. What's the big deal there? He had no kids. Why is that even mentioned? What's the, there's a practical reason. There's no lineage. There's nowhere to go from. There's a, there's a, there's a moral issue there too, isn't there? Well, I say moral. There's a... There is a designation, a characterization of their ministry before God. 
They didn't have kids to pass on to. It's a shame for them. It's a dishonor for them. They didn't, they didn't have anybody to teach to pass on to. It's a huge thing. Pass on what you've learned to the genera next generation. When they have a generation, they live long enough. They're too busy getting toasted. Alright, so we see... Um, we see then that these men were anointed, and the word anointed there means to have their hands filled. It's kind of a, a cultural idiom uh, that, that means uh, to con be consecrated to an office. Um, all right, let's see. So the reminder here, he, he brings up Nadab and Abihu as he's again mentioning the priesthood. Why do you think that's brought up, other than the practical reason of the genealogy, what, what would be in the minds of people who like, Oh yeah, Nadab and Abihu. What does that remind them of in their own lives? What do you think it points to, calls for? How they approach a holy God. Approach a holy God. He's setting up the priesthood for generations to come. This isn't just the immediate generation that's going to be reading this. This is, well, we're reading it, right? How do you approach a holy God? And it's also true for the Levites he's going to talk about in a minute. They're to guard and keep the tabernacle. They're to approach God in the right way. They're to keep people who are trying to approach Him in an unauthorized way from getting there. They're the temple guards. If you don't do that, there's consequences. God is holy. He's not to be trifled with. He means what He says. And bringing this up here is anticipatory of what we're going to see in number 16 with the rebellion of Korah. Both of those situations involve some kind of unauthorized fire, some kind of sen uh, fire in the sensor. So there's some, there's some thought there. Um, and then it ends with, in the lifetime of Aaron, literally before the face of Aaron, which means it's more than just while their father lived there. The, the, la the younger two are being priests while Aaron is overseeing their priesthood. And I think he has a really um, huge incentive to make sure that these next two... <laughs> <laughs> are following what they're supposed to do, right? So, it, the, the, can you imagine those two, though, Leezer and Ithamar? Like, can, can I take a pass on this? <laughs> I feel like they probably did their job to the T. Mm. <laughs> they saw what they happened, probably did. You know? They probably just Lots drank grape juice. Yeah. <laughs> they went Baptist. All right, <laughs> let's look at verse five. Look at verse five. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Bring the tribe of Levi near." And set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting, as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting, and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. All right. So God speaks first about the priesthood, their duties. Then he goes to Moses. He speaks to Moses about the duties of the entire tribe of Levi and the relationship they have with the Hebrew priesthood. So there are three duties listed here of the, of the tribe of Levi. In addition to the others that we saw before, they're to set up the tabernacle, they're to tear down the tabernacle, they're to carry the tabernacle, and that is just such an awesome glory hound job to tear things down, set it up, and to, and to stand guard. Any, any takers? I mean, think about that. You're traveling through the wilderness, and your job is every time Moses says break camp, oh, here we go. 
right? But that's their life. That's what they're called to. That's what they're set apart for and appointed to do. This is, and, and then they have some additional duties. First of all, who's in charge here? Aaron's in charge. God gives them to Aaron. What are they to do for Aaron? What does it say? Protect him. What does that mean? Are we talking about physical confrontations here? Maybe. Maybe. They're military trained guys. Um, but also just to serve him, to minister to him, not let him get too tired. I mean, he takes sabbatical, whatever. He, give him the support he needs to do what he needs to do by having people there to do. Yeah. yeah I was wondering if the minister, uh, like the word there was the same as like to I think it's service here. Yeah, I think I think it's to serve here, but it's but it's service that's that's a holy calling, right? So it's a it has with it the the aura of this is God ordained. There you go. Very good. All right. What's another? So Aaron's in charge. What are they to do? What are they, what are they called to do? Minister to Aaron. What else? The whole congregation keep guard over the people of Israel. Okay, so they're to keep guard over Aaron and keep guard over the, all the people of Israel. How? What are they supposed to be doing to, that's going to guard over the people of Israel? I mean, they got an army for that, right? That's what we just had this other census about. They, go, they take care of the tent of meeting? Yeah, they take care of the tent of meeting. And do tabernacle. Man, I'm having a tough time this morning. That's what it is. What, why is that protecting the people, though? Why would it be characterized that way? Because it says protect the people as they minister at the tabernacle. What does that mean? They could get a bihood. That's right. If everybody <laughs> messes over the temple or, or, or invades the temple uh, tabernacle in a way that God is not authorized. It's God who keeps guard over them and their relationship with God is directly connected to the temple. Okay. God keeps guard over them. And God is also, okay, so here you have a two, the two-edged sword here. God's really powerful. He wants to tabernacle, which is to, to the Emmanuel principle there. God with us is there in the midst of the camp, but he's holy. And we see what happens whenever you violate holiness in relationship to this. So there's a guard from the outside. There's a protect and guard from the inside because of the judgment of God is there in their midst as well. And the Levites are tasked with make sure that the people are doing what they need to do so that the holiness of God doesn't have to, to break out on them. And we see that again and again in Numbers, by the way. The people kind of violate the commands of God and are judged. Um, but it's setting it up here, what's gonna happen and why it's important that God responds the way he does. Um, so they're to guard from some things. One is unorthodoxy. They're, they're, they're to guard from strange fire, calling something of God that is not of God. Um, they're, they're to also guard from strange elements or people who are unauthorized. You don't have a Judite go in there and burn incense to God. That's not his role. That's not who he is. He's not authorized to do that. He would be a, strange, a stranger to that task. Even though he's part of Israel, he'd still be a stranger. Um, they guard the holiness of the tabernacle, and, and they're guarding people from being uh, roasted. So it states 
that they are to guard before the tent of meeting. They're to stand guard in front of, around, all the way around it. They're to guard both the furnishings and the services that are conducted in there. So the stuff and what goes on, they're protecting. Is that instructive to us? Well, it is interesting that those have been called for spiritual purposes, for religious, like I said, the religious class is to take care of the means of government. Okay. In what way? They're guarding it. They're protecting it. They're making sure everything is in its proper place. It's a particular duty, isn't it? I mean, it's very specific. It's not saying what to do, but it is making sure that everything is right so that the people who are deciding what to do can do it with the most ease and in the most proper way. Okay, so creating a buffer for people to think about how we approach things. They're creating a, a space where they're, they're making sure that what happens in the tabernacle of God is right. And, and basically, it's in legal circles, we have this phrase in contracts, um, you know, description of property is set out in Exhibit A, which is incorporated herein as it fully set forth, right? Leviticus is fully incorporated herein as it fully set forth, right? How about that this morning? <laughs> Use those exact words. <laughs> oh, incorporated herein as if fully set forth. In other words, I reference a document, but I really mean for you to read the whole document to, to be in this, in this phrase, in this thing. Why you just say that? Because it's much better to say it that way. And you get paid more. So, all right. So you have, uh, so you have the, the, the Levites again, standing guard and protecting the people, protecting the tabernacle. That's their job. And look at verses 9 and 10. He says, well, let me get back to it. He says, um, and you shall give the, the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel, and you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. The 9 and 10 are repetitive. And you see this a lot in Hebrew writing, this repetition thing going on. Why is that important to know? So I, Isaiah, stand before the throne of God. I see the angel saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Why is that important? Repetition illustrates importance. It represents Importance. There's a story in Genesis where um, uh, uh, Abraham goes out with the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, different time, uh, to fight against some other kings. And the kings that rise up against them fall into these big pits. And the Hebrew actually calls them pit pits. Because there's, I mean, because there's, when <laughs> R.C. Sproul says this way, he goes, because there are pits. And then there are pits, you know, you can pit pits. So Hebrew, whenever it emphasizes something, it repeats things. And you see this again and again. Here, he's repeating the exclusivity of the Levites to the, the, the priesthood. They're wholly consecrated. They're wholly given to Aaron. Just them, right? As if it point weren't made with Nadab and Abihu, do what I tell you, it's just them. Um, so you have this holy given thing. Look in verse 11. Why can God do this? Why can he do this? And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine. 
for all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both man and of beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. What's the basis for God taking the Levites? Why can he take an entire tribe unto himself and say, you're doing the tent work? And what's the implication there? I could have your first view. I could have taken yours, but I saved you. So these are mine. And I redeemed you, and so I'm taking the Levites as what do we call that? Starts with an S, ends with an Ushin. Substitution. Substitution. They are a substitution. Don't say, don't say Sushin. They're a substitution for the right that God has to the preeminent children, the preeminent of the generation of God. So he takes them. They belong to him. His true claim is on the firstborn of Israel because he delivered them from the destruction in Egypt. The Levites are substituted for the firstborn. Because they especially belong to him, what can he do with them? What does he do with them? Because they belong to God, he can do what? Give them to Aaron. And he does. And it's really not up for discussion. Look how he ends it. I'm the Lord. Now that calls their minds back to what he said in the Exodus. Um, in Exodus 12, 12, he says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. It's self-identification, um, and it's tying the events that he's talking about here, the instructions he's giving here, to what happened in his deliverance at uh, Egypt, and so that's that's really the the, the fullness of the of, of what we're going to read through and, and study today. But I have a couple of things I I, I want to talk to you about um, on this passage. There's been some talk lately by um, we'll just say by some foolish men that that we need to unhitch the New Testament from the Old Testament. You may have heard some of this. Sometimes uh, people who are professing to be Christians are embarrassed by the, quote, God of the Old Testament, and they want to cling to or promote the beatnik Jesus, you know, um, who doesn't make all the demands. Uh, we just need to focus on the love of Christ, divorced from the context in which God was, of what, what God was doing in history. That's heresy. I just want to kind of throw that out there. If somebody's saying, we just need to, I don't focus on the Old Testament, I just want to look at the New Testament, there's a guy uh, way back when, in 2nd in, in century, uh, named Marcion. It's a great name, I guess, Mark, I guess. Um, but Marcion believed that there were actually two gods, one in the Old Testament, one of the, you know, in Jesus in the New. And the old God in the Old Testament was, you know, vile, vengeful had issues and we needed to get ourselves away from him. We need to unhitch from the Jews basically is what Marcion was all about. And then of course a couple of things in, in the New Testament. There's that movement is kind of with us today. It's, it's always, it's a heresy is a barnacle on a ship. You never can quite scrape it all off. It's just going to stay with you. And that's kind of what's going on today. It's a very prominent pastor in Atlanta, Georgia that we shall go unnamed is, is pushing this today that we need to unhitch we view the Old Testament through the lens of the New. 
There, what God is doing here is promising something. He's promising a fulfillment of what he is doing in a priesthood. What's the fulfillment of this promise? Uh, better question. Who is the fulfillment of this promise? Jesus, always. All along the prophets speak of me, he says. And if we unhitch, we miss. The whole point of the gospel is who is Jesus and what has he done? If we unhitch from the Old Testament, the picture that God gives us in the Old Testament of what he's promising to come, a priest... It's promising the true priesthood of Christ. Of Christ. The, the Melchizedek priesthood. And I'm glad you went there. You're going to Hebrews. Which is always good when you're talking about Jewish things. Go to Hebrews. It's a good thing. So you have, um, you have in this a picture of a people, a priesthood set apart, a, pe a tribe set apart to guard the tabernacle, to keep it, to protect it, to, to, to weed out everything else that would come against it. Well, that's what Jesus does, is doing. Um, Hebrews 7. And this is the low-hanging fruit of this passage. Hebrews 7. Start in verse 23. The former priests, verse 23, the former priests, oh, verse 22 is pretty cool. This kind of lets you know exactly what he's talking about. This makes Jesus the, better, the guarantor of a better covenant. So we know who we're talking about here, right? Just so we get all of our uh, players in place. All right. Verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Aaron's not always going to be the high priest. He's on his way out. That's why he has a genealogy of two guys who are going to come up after him that he's overviewing and pass it on. He's going to die. But he, Jesus, holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. It's a picture. It's a promise. And then we have New Testament fulfillment. The promises God makes in the Old Testament, these pictures that He gives of Old Testament Israel, they're fulfilled in Christ in the New Testament. All right. So He says, um, consequently, why is it important that we know this? Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost. He's able to guard and keep to the uttermost. Those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. What does that mean? He's, Peter, Satan is asked to sift you like wheat. But I have interceded, I've prayed for you, I've interceded for you. So that when you return to your brothers, encourage them. It's a done deal. I've prayed for you. I have interceded for you as your priest. I've guarded and kept. And you know what? If you're in Christ, He's ever living to intercede for you. The picture that we have of a priesthood in the Old Testament is massively important because it tells us who Jesus is and what He's doing on our behalf as those who are called into Him who need to be kept because we, we gravitate towards strange fire. A lot but he prays for us that even though Satan may tempt us and attack us and sift us like wheat don't be afraid I ever live to intercede for you he says 
That's the picture that we have. It's massively important that we never unhitch the Old, the Old Testament from the New. Who is Jesus? What is, has He done? Is, is the whole purpose we're here. And to take away three quarters of the picture that God has given of who He is and what He's done and what, and what, what a massive, ridiculous, go somewhere else, go Buddhist, do something else. Go home, go fishing. We view the Old Testament through the lens of the New. What is happening here is a promise. The picture of the priesthood and the Levites is a promise of the one who will ultimately fulfill their roles in a much greater tabernacle. Who's the tabernacle? Jesus. Jesus is the tabernacle. And guess what? If you're in Christ, you are part of the... I always get answered in Sunday school. Uh, if, you're, if you're in Christ, you are part of the body of Christ. And he is guarding his body. He's keeping his body. He ever lives to intercede. And in, two, in the New Testament, it is Christ who guards the tabernacle of the temple, his church. It is Christ who keeps her holy by means of the sacrifice of himself. It is Christ who guards her through his word from false worship. And unlike Aaron, he holds that role forever. Here's another point. Another point here is that there are different offices and callings both in ancient Israel and the modern church. The Hebrews had priests and the Levites, that really awesome, cool job that they had to just stand there and guard. And, oh wait, we're marching. Well, let's somebody get the basins with the blood in them. Let's clean those out. Let's take them and go. Really awesome job. I've got the snuffer. I do the candle snuffer. That's my job. God consecrated them for this work. And even though it may be a menial job, they're set apart as holy to do that. In the same way, there are jobs in the church. Um, in the church, we have apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. People with gifts of service, people with gifts of, of, uh, of, of mercy, all of those things. And those are not exclusive. There are other ways that people serve the body and serve, the, serve um, outside. And just because I'm gifted to sweep the floor after Wednesday night meal doesn't mean that that's not a holy vocation to God in service to the church. That's the other picture we see here. Another picture. It's not the only. There's not only two. But, you know, the Bible's a multi-onion layered thing. Multi-onions. Multi-onions. With lots of layers. But these are the two that kind of rise to me. Is the, is the, is the, the idea of even the stuff that we do this, like, why am I doing this? What, what's the point of this? It's con you're consecrated to serve. You're consecrated not to serve, but to minister in the way that God has gifted you to do it. Um, although there are many types of service, even the most menial labor for God is of great value. The Levites performed some pretty basic and difficult tasks, especially in the physical tearing down and setting up and carrying the temple. Yet they were called to be dedicated to that work. It was God himself who set them apart for that work. How much more should we be conscious of the beauty and graciousness of God to set us apart for a work in Christ because it's in Christ, right? How much greater? Then being out in the desert is being in the body of Christ. So, all right, any questions, any comments? I know it's already 10.08, and for Rodney, that's like, I mean, it's in, I know, I start, I start getting docked.
I start getting docked. So any, any comments real quick on that? Any statements you all want to make? Any fruit to be thrown? Or I'll just go ahead and pray. Good stuff. Sorry. Just, what's that? Sorry, we didn't bring any tomatoes. You didn't bring any tomatoes? Oh, well, you know where I am. Uh, all right, let me pray and we'll move forward. Father, we do thank you that you, in your great wisdom, saw fit to reveal yourself to a people and that you didn't have to, but you spoke. And you made what was unknown known because you, you spoke it um, as the covenant God and give us a promise in the Old Testament that you have fulfilled in Christ in the New. And you're still fulfilling it. And you're fulfilling it in us today. And Lord, we pray that we are faithful and pass it on to the next generation so that they too may be fulfilled in Christ. Lord, as we go into the next uh, service, be with Philip, we pray. Um, give him the words to say. Give him the humility to say it because it all applies to him too. And he knows it and he feels it and we feel it. And we want to be shaped into the image of Jesus. That's the whole point of all this is to know who he is and what he's done and how we should reflect him rightly in the world around us. And so we pray for you to do in our hearts what we cannot do for ourselves. Please, Holy Spirit, be with us. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that are moved, not just with knowledge, but with a love and a zeal for the beauty and excellencies of Jesus this morning. We pray it in his name. Amen. Thank you guys for letting us crash in your casa.